Hello, and welcome to the Being Well podcast. I'm Forrest Hansen. I hope you enjoyed last week's episode with Dr. Angela Duckworth. If you haven't listened to it yet, I'd strongly recommend it. We had a great time speaking with her. Before we get into the central topic of today's episode, which focuses on managing anxious temperaments, I wanted to take a moment to talk about the structure of the podcast moving forward. Thanks to your support, the podcast has continued to grow, and as it's grown, we've had new opportunities to talk with some truly world-class experts in a variety of fields. We'll be weaving episodes featuring these experts in between our classic ones with just Dr. Hansen and me. We're also going to be playing around a bit with the format of the podcast, and there's a good chance that part of that will include uploading multiple times a week. Again, this is only possible because of the support that we've received from you, and we're both truly grateful for it. Also, we're hoping to do a mailbag episode of the podcast soon, where we answer questions from our listeners. If you'd like to submit a question, you can reach out to us through the contact form on our website, which I've linked in the description of this podcast. You can also email us at contact at beingwellpodcast.com. So with all that out of the way, let's get into the episode. Two weeks ago, we had an episode titled Why We Worry, which explored subjects related to the development of anxiety, fear, and wariness. We particularly explored the what and why of anxiety. Today, we're going to focus much more on the how, just how we can go about managing an anxious temperament or help loved ones manage their own. To help us do that, I'm joined by Dr. Rick Hansen. So how are you doing today? I'm good, and I do not feel anxious about this topic. (laughs) Well, that's a great place to start. In our last episode on anxiety and fear, we talked about anxious states versus traits, genetic variation in anxious temperaments, and whether we can develop an anxious temperament over time. I think it makes sense to kind of break this episode into sort of two and a half sections. What we can do to manage an anxious state, how we can reduce the trait of anxiety, and then as a bonus, what a not particularly anxious person can do to support those who do experience chronic anxiety in their lives. So let's start with anxious states, Mm -hmm. um, because we all experience those from time to time. If somebody is feeling anxious about something in the moment, even Mm -hmm. if they don't necessarily have the lasting trait Mm -hmm. of anxiety, what are some of the things that they can do to calm and settle themselves? Right. They basically fall into two categories, coping Mm. and practicing. By practicing, I mean doing things inside your own mind. So with regard to coping, uh, definitely take action as best you can. Uh, gather resources to deal with whatever it is you're worried about. Maybe you're worried about how your child is doing in school or your own finances or personal health, or you just get an uneasy feeling maybe in a relationship that something's gone off the the deep end there. So take action. Uh, Action binds anxiety. Uh, Even if you can't do everything, take the steps you can take. For example, maybe there's something in general you're worried about your health and you don't really know what to do, but at least you can make an appointment with a doctor to Mm, talk about mm -hmm. it. So you've done something. We're going to focus mainly on practicing. That's my specialty. I'm a psychologist and that's our territory, the two of us together. But any kind of internal practice is not a substitute for It's uh, an augmentation of, it's an enhancement Mm. of mobilizing an appropriate coping response. Mm -hmm. And I find very often people are anxious about threats, but they're actually not taking skillful action to deal with those threats. Mm. And if they did take skillful action, they would feel less anxious. And in fact, in the beginning, there's this phrase, signal anxiety. 
anxiety's proper function is as a signal, like a light flashing on your inner dashboard. Rut row, relationship issues. Rut row, need to start exercising. I'm getting old and fat. You know, rut row, I don't have any money for savings. It's useful. Mm. Rut row, there's a shadow in the jungle next to me, and it might be a saber-toothed tiger. So there's a place for the signal, and we should listen to it. Where anxiety uh, is not useful is when it's just noise, like a car alarm blapping away. So we have the foundation of coping. Then practicing, I'll just hit, I'll name three headlines and see what you have to say about them. So to practice with anxiety, there's sort of a cognitive track, an emotional somatic track, and a relational track. So on the cognitive track, we want to make sure that we're not over-exaggerating threats and underestimating resources for dealing with threats. In other words, we want to make sure that we're not, in a sense, diluted, to use a strong word, that, whoa, it's threat level orange. Well, you know, it's really more like threat level yellow or chartreuse. Second, we want to make sure that in terms of our emotional somatic state, that we are calming the body and cultivating positive emotions, which are wonderful, powerful ways to practice with anxiety. And then last, interpersonally, as big social monkeys, we are really soothed by the sense that others are with us, they're protecting us, they're for us, they see good in us. Uh, Even if the world around us is crumbling in some ways, at least there's someone that we can go home to, or there's someone we can bring to mind from our memories. So those are the three major categories Mm. of inner practice with anxiety. Yeah. So part of what you said initially there is that anxiety is about triggering us to activate some kind of a coping response. We are afraid about a thing. That's its proper function. Yeah, so we should move into activity around that thing. But you also said, well, I've often seen in my own life, and I'm Mm -hmm. sure in your clinical practice as well, many, many examples of somebody being perniciously anxious about somebody, but not mobilizing coping around it. such a great topic. Yeah, so I'm I'm wondering why. Why does that happen? I mean, just kind of musing for a second in the fight, flight, or freeze part of the spectrum freeze is one of those words, so maybe that has something to do with it, but you would know much more about that than I would. Well, maybe. Um, (laughs) I would say that, uh, first, it's useful to appreciate, in effect, that the mind-slash-brain is like a village with multiple characters running Mm -hmm. around, Mm -hmm. or you can imagine a kind of committee. One of the metaphors for consciousness is that it's like a global workspace. I actually think about King Arthur and the round table. Okay, yeah. So you have different voices. So let's say that one of the voices at the table is nervous Nelly, to hopefully not stereotype here. And so, you know, that voice of anxiety is really blapping. But then there are other voices at the table or other forces at the table who, for example, are passive or inert or feel helpless or... Maybe in some way are getting a secondary gain, as we shrink say, from the anxiety, some covert or internal reward value, even unconscious reward Mm -hmm. from being anxious, which Mm -hmm. perhaps the reward might be that it draws others in to rescue or protect Mm -hmm. you. Mm -hmm. So it's Mm -hmm. a, it's a, it becomes a basis for making a dependency claim to put it a certain way, yeah. on other people. Maybe. I'm not saying it is that way. I'm just saying there could be other forces. So it's like there's an eternal uh, ecosystem inside, a kind of ecology where you have different forces balancing each other. And just because we're anxious about something doesn't necessarily mean 
We're going to do something about it. That's where I think over time, and I bet we'll get more to this about trait anxiety, it's really good to grow coping resources inside. In other words, kind of feed or strengthen other characters at the table who can, for example, be appropriate uh, appropriately soothing and encouraging to the mm. more anxious parts of ourselves, along with other resources inside that are tough, that are determined, that are moxie, right? That are scruffy and going to hang in there. Maybe they're kind of ragged about it. Maybe they're battered, but they're unbowed and uncowed. And by growing those resources, then the balance of the mind starts shifting in a more positive direction so that the alarm signals of anxiety are not merely futile or a gesture. But I want to get back to you first. I think that's a really great question. Mm -hmm. Like, here a person is anxious. Why aren't they taking action? Why yeah. aren't they doing something about what they're anxious about? Well, I think for some people, they, they see their anxieties as things which they have no control over, and those are the yeah, things that they're the most right. afraid of, fundamentally. I, yeah. I think the classic example, and one near and dear to our hearts, because... Uh, my mother, your wife, is has a bit of a concern while driving. And one of her concerns is just when she's in the passenger seat. Yeah. And someone else is driving the darn car down the highway, and yeah. she sees the big old truck driving next to us. Uh -huh. That is a situation where she has very little operational control. It's yeah. very challenging to mobilize resources to meet that feeling of anxiety. So her way of mobilizing resources is, honey, will you slow down a little bit? Or grabbing onto the little handrail thing next to right. her or closing her eyes or whatever it might be. So she's taking steps, but even then those steps are insufficient yeah. to actually address the deep anxiety because there's a feeling of a lack of control. Yeah. And in that moment, by the way, that lack of control is accurate. She does yeah. not have control in that environment. In a way, I think you're getting at two answers to mm. this fantastic, wonderful inquiry you've opened up here. Mm. Why don't we do something? When we're nervous, when we're worried, we're apprehensive, we're uneasy, we're alarmed, why don't we act? And I, I could think of two reasons for that, and there are probably several others, but minimally these. First, a lot of what uh, is happening when we're anxious about something is that in the language of psychology, a stimulus has occurred, an mm. event like being in a car or being around a powerful authority figure. A stimulus has occurred that then triggers a response that is turbocharged by previous life experiences. Mm -hmm. Previous learning in the language of psychology gets transferred into the, the current situation that shapes the way we see it and how intensely and the ways in which we react to it. So it's mm -hmm. like the whole package mm -hmm. gets reactivated, gets stirred up. And in that whole package, let's say, could be uh, both uh, an intense sense of alarm or anticipated pain or mm -hmm. disaster to oneself or perhaps to others that comes from, say, previous life experiences, such as in childhood, along with what else was going down back in the day, including potentially feelings of helplessness mm -hmm. or the reality of being small and little or not understanding or being unable to make a change. That gets transferred mm -hmm. in as well, mm -hmm. along with this turbocharged, amplified experience of anxiety. That's interesting. And I think a second potential answer to this deep question you're raising is that 
in the anxiety, one thing that, that leads or that obstructs relaxation is a kind of uh, lack of recognizing the uh, imperfectibility of life. Mm. In other words, if we recognize that globally there is so much we can't do anything about, then we don't need to feel so hopeless and helpless because we're kind of just grounded in the reality of it all. And paradoxically, I think recognizing how vastly we cannot influence things and coming to peace about it, you know, having discernment and serenity about that, in a weird kind of way, clears the decks mm. to focus on, well, at least I can brush my teeth today, <laughs> right? I can't stop the global process of decay and aging and those little you know, bacteria that are grinding away inside, you know, my teeth. Sorry, everybody. But on the other hand, I can at least brush my teeth. You know, and I can do yeah. something. Yeah. I can't I can't protect my children perfectly, but I can ask them to let me know on their phones where they are when they go out with friends, mm -hmm. for example. And then they can turn off notifications later when they're when they're safe again. So at least there's something I can do. What do you think about all that? I want to plant a flag in the first one of those things that you yeah. mentioned for a second, because I think it's a really interesting idea that when we get, quote unquote, triggered yeah. around something, because anxiety is fundamentally a trigger, there's yeah. some kind of triggering event that leads to our experience. We're not just evoking one emotional state. We're evoking a suite of emotional right. states and a yeah. suite of psychological material yeah. that is all kind of mixed up and blended together and very, very, very challenging. Right, when the song yeah. is pulled up from storage, mm -hmm. you don't just play the vocals. Yeah, you, you play the whole the darn song. the bass and the drums and the bagpipes. Absolutely, yeah. but I think that cognitively, yeah. for starters, we're just not very good at talking about this stuff because language is limiting and our mm. words are imperfect yeah. and we say one thing and we mean another and all of that good stuff. But when we get triggered in that way, the language we have to describe it is, I am anxious right now, or I am feeling afraid. The language we don't really have to describe it is, I'm afraid, and connected to that are all these feelings I had as a kid where I was afraid, but I couldn't yeah. do anything about it, yeah. and my parents weren't very supportive. And when I went to my mother at night, mm. when I was having a nightmare, she said, oh, go back to your room, don't worry about it. So it mm. felt like even when I tried to take a step, mm -hmm. it just kind of didn't matter in the yeah. end. That whole stew is all part of the anxiety exactly. equation. And yeah. I think it's just really fascinating the way that all of those emotions yeah. can be connected and how it can move that kind of committee that you were talking about earlier yeah. into a sort of internal paralysis. Yeah. Jung had a great word for that. He called them complexes, mm -hmm. which really speaks to it. In other words, uh, what gets stirred up, say, is maybe an idea like no one will help me. But along with that idea is a suite, a whole rest of the song, all the other tracks mm -hmm. of sensations, emotions, ways of presuming and framing relationships, desires, longings, uh, a sense of self, a sense of the world. The whole package mm. gets swirled up mm -hmm. in a kind of complex. And one of the great practices through mindfulness and self-awareness broadly uh, is to tease apart the individual threads mm. that present themselves initially in a tangled knot. Do you have any suggestions for somebody about how they might go through a process of doing that, practically speaking, whether they're in the yeah. moment of having a 
I don't mean necessarily a literal anxiety mm. attack, but an uprising of anxiety. Or if there's somebody who has trait anxiety mm. and wants to begin the process of starting to unravel that. I think it's a classic process of unpacking, of it revealing to oneself uh, what's really going on. So let's suppose that you know, there you are driving in the car and you're getting really nervous and you mm-hmm. want to clutch the handrail even though it won't do any good. Or maybe there's something that just you're getting a funny feeling about in an mm. important relationship mm-hmm. and you're really starting to wonder, rut road, did I say something wrong? What's going on? At that point, I think it's really helpful. Sometimes you can't do it in the moment because you've got to cope, let's yeah. say. But at the point you're tipping more into practicing, and of course, coping and practicing often weave together as we as the hours and days unfold. When you're shifting into practicing, kind of slow down and go, okay, I, I find it really helpful to think of our experience as like a song with five tracks. Mm. So it's kind of a way to be systematic about it. So there's the thought track. Mm -hmm. And you and I developed this idea a lot in our book, Resilient, where we talk about this. Because each one of these tracks... <laughs> but has both peril and promise. On the peril side is where it gets us in trouble. On the promise side is where it's a domain, if you will. It's a place where we can both have growing insight and we can have growing resources. Mm. We can develop, we can let go of unhelpful thoughts and grow helpful thoughts. We can mm-hmm. let go of unhelpful sensations. That's the second main track. And then grow beneficial sensations inside ourselves. The third track is emotion. What am I feeling, especially the deeper feelings underneath the surface feelings emotionally? Under that, I think desires, longings, intentions, wishes, that's very provocative to explore, Uh, often because there's a fair amount of suppression related to past painful experiences. Mm. And what do I really want here? It's such an intimate and vulnerable and self-advocating kind of question. What do I really want here? deep underneath it all? It's a really deep question. And then last, are there behaviors? Are there action tendencies that are kind of being invoked? Facial expressions, postures, gestures, language. Are there action tendencies inside my mind that are being mobilized? For example, maybe there's this thing I'm worried about and inside me is a kind of superficial preempting of the worry with false reassurance. Oh, it's really fine. That relationship's just fine. Or, oh, you know, my kid, uh, he's struggling in school, but he'll learn to read eventually. And uh, rather than Mm. thinking, hmm, it's third grade, things should have settled down by now. Maybe we need to mobilize some more resources in the real world. So these are action tendencies. These are behaviors. So those five the thought track, which includes nonverbal imagery or kind of uh, paradigms or perspectives. And then we have the perception track, which especially includes body sensations, then emotions, desires, and actions. So those are ways to really unpack our reactions to things. Mm-hmm. And in the process of that, as, as you well know, and, uh, we become more autonomous. Mm. We become more free inside our own minds. These reactions arise. I have them, but I do not need to be them. And Mm -hmm. that shift right there is honestly 50% ballpark. Mm -hmm. It's half the process of coming to a softer landing and then then being able to cope more effectively. Mm Because as you improve your practicing, your coping improves as well. Okay, great. So that's a sort of intertwined way to potentially over time reduce some trait anxiety is what with I'm repetition. hearing you describe. Yeah, with That's repetition. Great. With repetition, you unpacking. practice with states yes. and that shifts your traits. Yeah, absolutely. 
Do you have any other kind of suggestions or guidances or recommendations for someone who really has a strong trait mm-hmm. of anxiety and they're they're trying to lower that thermostat generally outside of the state of it? Yeah. Uh, I think one of the first suggestions is to appreciate that you're anxious for a reason, mm. that you've got this trait, if you will, for a reason. A big chunk of the reason is genetic, biological, mm-hmm. probably. As we talked about extensively in the previous episode. Yeah. yeah. And then, and or uh, you've grown up in scary circumstances, mm-hmm. or you had good reason, or uh, it only takes one episode of something horrible to affect people quite deeply because Mm -hmm. if it could happen once, it could happen twice. A second thing is to really ask yourself, what's adaptive and useful about this? And on the other hand, what gets in the way of real long-term coping Mm. and well-being? And decide. If you're living in, hypothetically, an oppressive dictatorship with a scary secret police and terrible things are happening, you're living under occupation maybe in some part of the world perhaps, in those environments or you're growing up in a family where there's violent abuse that could happen at the just blink of an eye, it's appropriate to be nervous all the time and on your toes and with a kind of background of latent terror. That's adaptive. On the other hand, for most of us, we're carrying much more fear around than we really need to carry. And it's very useful to realize that you can be strong, you can be vigilant, you can cope effectively without carrying undue feelings of nervousness and uneasiness, even panic or terror with you. Clarity about what your position is. For me, actually, um, I would describe myself as being, I would say, sort of high, mild, or low, moderate, anxious temperament by nature. Mm. And uh, I also had experiences a lot as a kid that that bred and fed a greater trait anxiety in me. And there really uh, was a kind of turning point progressively in my life over time at multiple moments where I just decided for myself, I was sick of being afraid. Mm-hmm. And I was also sick, frankly, and this is a huge topic right here, of other people manipulating our general human vulnerability of fear Mm. to control me or alarm me or threaten me uh, or cow me. And I didn't like that. I didn't like that at the level of a boss or a partner or somebody walking toward me on the street that I had never seen before in my life. And I sure don't like it at the level of, you know, politics and governments. So, you know, find that determination inside yourself to make a shift. That's a really, that's a real one. And it's easy to blow right by that and then wonder why it's not working. Well, because you didn't take that step mm. of really choosing mm-hmm. to be free of fear. Yeah. And then beyond that, just kind of quick summary, I think calming and soothing the visceral core of the body is extremely important. That visceral core is essentially the heart and the lungs. It's really important to uh, address the visceral core of mm-hmm. breathing and the heart beating. Uh, there are different methods that do this. We've explored some of them involving heart rate variability. Uh, being able to exhale and, and help your body slow down is really important. You can repeatedly train in that. There's good research that shows that repeated states of calming promote trait calm as a characteristic and rapid recovery to your calm strong baseline if you get agitated or Mm -hmm. knocked out of that centered place. So you essentially gave three pieces of advice there. The first one is to know that there's some kind of fundamental reason underneath your anxiety. 
The second is the movement to mobilize resources toward dealing with your anxiety, really deciding that you're going to do something about it. And then the third one is kind of stabilizing and calming the core of the body, because that's often what we experience as being activated when we're in a profound state of anxiety. And some of the reason for that is because those areas are so essential to our fundamental underlying safety. So you can kind of get this layer of psycho-emotional trigger into physical trigger into psycho-emotional trigger and so on. Right. So if you have more, one maybe one or two other things yeah. that you can think of that can help people either manage a trait or manage a state. Yeah. So a fourth thing is to really rationally address your thoughts, your beliefs about threats. Mm. How likely are they actually? This is the first of three great questions. Second, if they did occur, how bad would it really be these mm-hmm. days? And third, even if in the unlikely event that they occurred mm. and it was really horrible, third, how would you cope? So that rational part, that cognitive part, is actually a well-known aspect of treatment for anxiety. Mm-hmm. A fifth, a really work on positive emotions that are natural antidotes to feelings of anxiety emotions of self-confidence, of uh, inner peace, of feelings of reassurance or relief. Again and again and again, as you experience those traits and then use our methods we've explored uh, for us to internalize those experiences, then you grow them as traits inside. And then the last, uh, the sixth one I'll suggest here, is to turn to social supplies. Mm. In other words, repeatedly having experiences, states, of feeling connected to others, protected by others, seen and supported by others. And then through internalization, turning those states into traits, that too will tend to grow resources inside, social supplies that are woven into the fabric of our nervous system that we can draw on the next time we feel nervous about something. Yeah, I'm sure that we could spend a full episode on each of those six processes, exploring them in detail. But I think that that's a really great overview for the moment, for somebody who might be trying to either manage a state of anxiety or tamp down the overall trait of anxiety. So that's great material for somebody trying to do it inside of their own body. But even if you're not somebody who experiences anxiety on a regular basis, Mm. if you're pretty calm, you're pretty settled, you're pretty immovable in the face of seeming external danger, we all have friends and family and people we care about who experience anxious states regularly. What can we do as individuals to help others either calm their anxiety in the moment or remove the overall trait of anxiety from their experience? Right. So let's say first that we've ticked the box of coping on their behalf Mm. to remove objective, actual dangers or to reduce the risks of various kinds of things. So let's suppose that if we're in the car with someone who's anxious, say we move out of the fast lane into the slow lane, or we back off a few car lengths from Mm -hmm. the car in front, things like that. We respect their reasonable concerns. Yeah. We've done what we can to arrange their circumstances. Then what do we do? Paradoxically, I think the most effective place to start is often the last thing we want to do, which is to join with their fears. In other words, in authentic ways, really not try to shut them down about what they're afraid of, Mm -hmm. but in fact, feel into it and listen to it. In other words, if you think about it, if if we're scared about something, in a way, we're scared about two things Mm -hmm. if we're in relationship with another person. First, we're scared of the thing we're scared of. Second, actually, the, the more terrifying thing is that no one will hear us. 
or mm. care about or help us with what we're afraid of. So in a funny kind of way, what seems like the primary fear is actually the secondary fear, mm. the specific fear of the truck that might crash into us. Mm -hmm. uh, the real fear is that my fears don't matter to you. Or that somebody else doesn't recognize the danger. Yeah. 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 That's like, uh, that's, yeah. that's, that's uh, a kind of general system level fear that is a much higher priority. Again, especially if you think about people in our evolution, living in community with each other. Mm -hmm. So uh, it, it helps to, as best you can, to be kind of reassuring or, or to touch base and not give false reassurances. And often, and also try to be aware of the ways in which their anxieties stir up your anxieties. So to manage your anxieties, you try to suppress or shut down or even shame their anxieties. And that's a very powerful process in many, many people. Um, I've observed it many times. Next, being really reassuring to the max. Mm. Like, what can I do? What can I agree to? Because if you are to them an unreliable or uncontrollable or uninfluenceable partner, mm. whoa, that's really scary. Yeah, that activates that feeling yeah. that we were talking about earlier. Yeah, so to the max, how can you seem reliable? And how can you, in effect, let them control you? Which mm. also does tend to stir up defensive reactions inside us that push away uh, what they're wanting because it feels dominating somehow or mm -hmm. invasive or mm -hmm. controlling. Mm -hmm. <sighs> you got to take a deep breath and recognize, yeah, it's natural to have those reactions. And yet, hello, is it skillful means to give way to them? You might get away with it on this particular episode, right? But it could be a short-term fix. But long-term, it's actually just going to make that other person more anxious mm -hmm. when, they're, when they're around you. It's not going to be an effective strategy. And then the last thing, I think, if it's appropriate at all, and there are certain relationships where it's not appropriate, you just can't do it. But if you can, find a time not in the moment when their alarm bells are ringing loudly, yeah. offline, raising the question of, huh, you seem anxious about this out of proportion to the real threat, and maybe even add the ways that when you are this way, I feel this. Mm -hmm. Not blaming you, but it is how I feel. Using and that structure of nonviolent communication exactly right. or something like that. Yeah. yeah, when you feel this, I feel that. Uh, exactly right. Uh, and then enter into the larger conversation. Like, what are we going to do about this? Mm -hmm. And um, could ranging from the other person, the anxious person, let's say, and, you know, in a sweet way, feeling a little maybe silly or foolish or exaggerated about their anxieties uh, or making some kind of long-term agreement like, you know, uh, hey, uh, I'll, as I have with your mom, uh, I will just <laughs> drop into driving Miss Daisy mode uh, and I'm committed to that. I don't care. It's really okay. I'll give you that. No worries. Or you might just very clearly agree to disagree and sort of dis disentangle yourself, reduce some intersections between you. For example, I don't use the driving thing. Just say, bottom line, I'm not going to drive with you mm. unless you can be relaxed about it. And I'm cool with you driving. I'm fine with us taking an Uber. I'm fine with us ultimately not going. I'm fine with I go my way, you go your way, whatever it is. But we just say, you know, I'm just not worried about this thing. You know, I'm going to put on the, my plate what I want to put on my plate. 
and I'm going to uh, eat what I want to eat, and I get that you're going to do something different, and we're just going to be different, different in that way. Yeah, yeah and- absolutely. No, I mean, I think that that's a great point because it addresses a sort of natural objection that somebody might be having here, which is, but wait, what if I... What if I just think they're kind of crazy? Or what mm-hmm. if I think their anxiety is unreasonable yeah. in nature? And those are some great ways to approach unreasonable anxiety. Mm-hmm. I would add one more thing. If it's at all appropriate, touch. Mm. Touch is incredibly soothing. And there's tremendous research, actually, on the soothing power of touch. It needs to be appropriate touch. It needs to be welcomed touch. Mm-hmm. And And one of the things that I fear has happened in our modern culture with all its wonderful technological advances has been a a bad combination of two things. One, tons of threatening messages coming in through media Mm. about events uh, locally and globally that we can't do anything about. And simultaneously, we touch each other less. Mm. We look into each other's eyes less. We sit side by side less. We're, our our connections are more attenuated often. Mm-hmm. And so we have this double whammy, right? More things to worry about and less uh, primal social mammal soothing available to us. And that's why I think if it's at all appropriate when someone um, you're with is worried, alarmed, uneasy, finding ways to just put your hand on their arm for a moment, rub their shoulder, <laughs> disconnect, or move a little closer, give them a hug. Those all can be wonderful ways to help others calm down more. Yeah, I think that's a great note. And of course, with the inevitable caveat that you already gave that all of this has to be appropriate and beyond being appropriate, there are a lot of people who have a lot of anxiety around issues of physical touch. So they're one of those people. If you're one of those people, that may not be the solution for you. But I do think that as a general statement, there has been a real diminishment of one-on-one interpersonal interaction mm. in our in our society as a whole, yeah. and certainly a reduction in the amount of time that we spend physically fully present with one another in a shared space. And I think that finding opportunities to reconnect um, physically or psycho-emotionally with others can indeed be extremely soothing. Yeah. Great. So I think that that's a great and quite sweet note to wrap today's episode on. So next week, looking ahead a little bit, we've got a great episode for you. I had the pleasure of interviewing Matt Diavella, who's the director of the Netflix documentary Minimalism, which Dr. Hansen was a guest expert on. That documentary asked the central question, how might my life be better with less? I spoke with Matt about how minimalism has impacted his life, what it means to truly be a professional, and how we can redefine success. I think you'll really enjoy it. If you have been enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you'd take a moment to leave a review and subscribe to it through the platform of your choice. It helps other people find it and really is absolutely a benefit to us. So now it's time for a quick recap of today's episode. Today, we talked about ways to manage anxiety and fear in our lives. We started by talking a little bit, continuing our conversation from the previous episode on where anxiety comes from, and particularly spending some time with why anxiety doesn't always compel people to action. There's some stimulus that makes us feel afraid, but then we don't always take steps immediately to respond to that stimulus, removing it and therefore becoming unafraid. So why is that? Well, it turns out that when we're anxious, we're not just frightened. This whole community of emotions, which you refer to as a complex, gets evoked inside the body, 
which can often lead to us not mobilizing appropriate response into action. We then talked about a variety of ways to reduce state and trait anxiety. We looked at both in-the-moment soothing and more big-picture, outside-of-the-moment ways to investigate and interact with the content of the mind, perhaps unraveling some of those complex balls of string so that all of those partner emotions aren't evoked in the moment of an evocation of anxiety. You then gave six ways that somebody can go through and mess with their trait anxiety, which was really wonderful and very thorough. And then finally, we closed with how we can help other people soothe their anxiety, either in interaction with them by changing our own behavior, or by talking with them about their fears and their behavior, or finally, by possibly simply increasing physical interaction and doing behaviors that could soothe and calm the uh, more reptile or mammalian parts of the brainstem, if you will. So, on that note, I hope you'll join us again next week for my conversation with Matt Diavella. Until then, thanks for listening. <laughs>